Hello and welcome to episode 125 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray settling the nerves before the opening tee shot of the nation's most important tournament. We're coming to you today from the home of golf in Australia, ahead of one of the most important weeks of the year for the game here. Golf Australia have generously let us use the podcast room at their headquarters at Sandy Link so that we can discuss with two very special guests and one very special co-host, the upcoming Men's and Women's Australian Opens to be held concurrently this coming week. The host courses will be two of this nation's finest in Kingston Heath and Victoria Golf Clubs, and we're privileged to be joined today by the President of Kingston Heath, Nicky McClure, and the very recently but still no doubt very involved past President of Victoria Golf Club, Sue Hosking. I'll bring Nicky and Sue into the conversation in just a moment, but first, as is tradition here at Good Good, I'll start the introductions not with our guests but with co-hosts, and while normally I'd be introducing the, how would I describe him, one-of-a-kind, Adrian Logue at this point, today it is instead my great pleasure to say hello and welcome to one of Australia's all-too-few women golf writers and host of one of our best podcasts in tea for two, Karen Harding. Karen, welcome. I know you were nervous about what I was going to say, but I thought that was quite nice. It was unusually pleasant, Rod. Thank you very it almost, much indeed. almost sounded sincere too, didn't it? Yes, it did, actually, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Well, thank you for having me in the seat usually occupied by the urbane Mr Logue. In urbane Mr Logue, indeed. It will indeed be a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to it. Now, normally speaking of Logue, he has a weird stat for us at about this point. You told me earlier today you have not so much a stat but a curio. Do you I care do. to share? I do. The first Men's Australian Open was won in 1904 by Michael Scott later Sir Michael, mm-hmm. 100 years later, the Women's Australian Open was won in 2004 by Laura Davies, later Dame Laura, so some elegance there. What we can say is that the 77 Australian winners of the championship are without peer. Thank you for that. A curio indeed. All right. As I said, it's a big and important week for golf in Australia this week on multiple fronts. Not only does the Australian Open return to the calendar for the first time in a couple of years, but it's a groundbreaking one with the men's and women's events to be played concurrently. As I mentioned, we've got two special guests. First, it's a welcome and a thanks to Nikki McClure, President of Kingston Heath. Nikki, thanks for taking some time in what, no doubt, is a pretty busy week. Thanks, Rod. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Actually, uh, yes. the least I could do, <laughs> and I'm always up for the least I can do. <laughs> Extremely busy week coming up, but... I mean, I get the easy gig. I sit back and watch, really. <laughs> Lucky you've had three really simple years leading up to not have to worry about anything yeah. to relax and get ready. Uh, we're also joined by the very recent past president of Victoria Golf Club, Sue Hosking. So I'm sure that you too will find plenty to keep you busy. In fact, Victoria will probably find plenty to keep you busy this week as well. In fact, uh, thanks for having me, Rod. Yes, um, I'm on deck every day this week. I don't doubt it. And an exciting time must be. Nikki, I'm going to start with you. What is the lead-up to an Australian Open like when you're the president of the golf club? Um, Well, my role is intrinsically around membership, uh, members in-house and supporting the captain um, and working with the management team. Uh, Andrew Taylor, our general manager, uh, is uh, extraordinary in his role and he's got a great team backing him up. So uh, I'm just there rallying the members, um, you know, encouraging and sharing the experiences of volunteering myself at World Cups and Masters. So, um, no, it's been really exciting and everybody is on their toes embracing it. Great privilege for a club to host a tournament like the Australian Open. Great inconvenience for members also. How do you manage that? In And it, does, it isn't just the week, is it? 
there's inconveniences in the lead up. Yeah, to. I think this time round um, it's been a bit easier for the Heath um, because sadly the pandemic uh, took away our hosting rights um, uh, in 2020. Um, and then Victoria were next uh, for 22. So um, we've stood up and taken on the role of the uh, double hosting um, to uh, support the men's, women's and all abilities format. So, um, look, we're, we're, we have been uh, – it's been kind to us. We've got no infra- infrastructure um, around the club and we've pretty much just lost one day of opening, which was um, yesterday. Okay, fantastic. Sue, what's the experience been like for you at Victoria? Look, I think it's been a bit different for Victoria. Um, as so is the main course, by the way, for the, the last two rounds we played right. at Victoria. It's, it's a, of the two all venues, four it's rounds. The, the, yeah, they'll be yes. play all four days at Victoria. That's right. So I, I think it's been more difficult for us because we've always we're a very local club, and our members love to play a lot of golf, and so it means that um, you know in the lead up to the tournament we've had many course closures, and uh, that's been a disappointment to them. Um, the other thing is that you may or may not know, but we did a greens renovation program in 2018 and that pretty much closed the course for two months and then we had limited play for four months. So we've actually been asking a lot of our members. It's a real uh, sacrifice, you know, isn't it? That's think, right. Think about your own course if it closed for yes. all of that time. However, we just did a recent survey of our members about all sorts of topics and we asked them about the Australian Open and in fact 89% of our members loved having the, the tournament because they could see beyond their own um, difficulties that it's going to be a great benefit to the club and to them going forward. It's one of those things at the time, I suppose, is it feels awful and you jump up and down and complain about it. When this week arrives, you say, oh, it's all been worth it. This is going to be yes. fantastic. And oh, amazing. and, you know, there's a great buzz around the of club, course, as, yeah. you know, Nikki has said about Kingston Heath. It's, um, yeah, I, I think our members are genuinely excited and there are so many that have volunteered. It's, it's fabulous. Yeah, great buzz around golf in Australia at the moment. Fabulous yes. week last week at Royal Queensland. I'm hoping that that energy will continue. So how does an Australian Open come to the club? Is it an informal chat between people at a dinner who sort of say, wonder, well, we wouldn't mind hosting the Open at Victoria. What do you think, Sue? Or is it somewhat more for... How are those channels of communication? How do they actually work? Well, my understanding, it's largely through the general manager. And so it was our original general manager, Peter Stackpole, who negotiated with Golf Australia to bring it to Victoria. And then our role as board members has been largely to support him. And, of course, uh, Peter has left and we now have Anthony Ells. Anthony is very experienced in tournament golf, uh, both in South uh, South Africa and in New Zealand. So, he's again, our role has been to support Anthony. Tournament golf's a different beast, isn't it, Nikki? Yes. Hosting yeah. an Australian Open is not like hosting a club championship or any other sort of an event, is it? No, not at all. Um, I think it it just brings that back to the um, feeling of members and the buzz around the club. It just brings a different energy. I think the Australian market, we've been dying for this. Starved. We have we? been starved. Yes. And so everybody is embracing it. And the Tier 1 clubs – you know, tournament golf is everything to them. Mm. It brings so much diversity to the to the club itself within the staff, and it's not just management. It's not just the the, the pro shop. It's all the on course staff as well. And for them to get the experience and then continue that experience through the club for many years to come, you keep awesome staff. 
um, international staff want to come and work at Kingston Heath and Victoria. So it's, it's, it's really healthy for, for the industry. And of course, you've got lots of already experienced staff at both Kingston Heath and Victoria with that's tournaments right. and those things. And that's crucial because it can be intimidating as sort of a big event. Question for both of you. I'll come to you first. Sir. I imagine that a club like Victoria, and true of Kingston Heath as well, in some ways attracts some membership who want to host the Open. I think Nikki just alluded to that. There's a lot less to get to to lose days of playing those kinds of things when you've got a membership who know that there's a bigger purpose to it. Yes. I mean, we've had many elite golfers, but we've got a very strong golfing um, membership. Um, you know, when you just look at our pennant records over the years, that, you know, gives you an indication of that. But they're, they're members who are besotted with their golf, and so they love to see the best players in the world coming to play their course. Yeah, indeed. Uh the elephant in the room, you're both women, and this is still unusual in this day and age to have women who are presidents of golf clubs, a very recent sort of past president. What's that journey been like, Sue? Should that be of any interest? Um, I'll tell you a funny story. I came on as president just after the President's Cup here, and our club was booming. We had so many visitors coming from interstate. We had bookings. As you may know, we have accommodation. So that was that was terrific as well. And I thought this is going to be a really exciting time to be president. After I'd been there about a month, I got an invitation from an international club. The captain and I were invited to their 150th celebration. Now, my husband and I, we love travelling, so we were planning, you know, what else we could do after this big gala golf event. And about a week later, I got a note back to say, oh, sorry, we didn't realise you're a woman. Maybe next time. Sorry? Wow. In 2020? Uh, this was in 2019. Wow. <clears throat> we won't ask you to name names on air, but I when won't. we finish recording this, one of the first things I'm going to ask <laughs> you is where that club was. I was rather shocked, I must say. Well, we can make light of it, but that's really not funny. Yes. So did they offer any reason beyond that? No, just that I was a female. That's quite staggering, isn't it, Karen? It is. You write about a lot of this sort of stuff. You and I talk about a lot of this sort of stuff. Are you surprised to hear that in 2022? I am, but I'm a bloke. I am surprised. Uh, more than anything, I'd say I'm disappointed because I think that we've evolved beyond that. Certainly in this country, we're making good headway and I would have thought that we were doing so throughout the world, actually. So like you, I'll be interested to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you, are, you and I are the privileged few, Karen, if Sue decides to give up the information, but she won't. Nikki, has anything like that happened to you? Well, no, not really, actually, which is great. But um, I'm just having a quick look here. So... Uh, a week after I became president, um, Dr. Deb Kemba from uh, the Brisbane Golf Club reached out uh, and she's been vice president there um, and just took on um, another term. Uh, and anyway, she invited me to join herself and uh, vice presidents from Inderipoli um, and also uh, the Grange. Uh, so golf clubs uh, around Australia, we've put together a leadership network group of women who are either <clears throat> captains, vice presidents, presidents, and all sitting on the board, very actively involved in this in this club life and club land. And so I've yeah I've only seen positive, um, and you know that that's just that's just a, obviously really. Um, uh, that's Tragic circumstances, yeah, yeah. And I would, you'd have to say, I think that is a very small minority, I'd imagine. Yeah, 
Uh, can I also add, in contrast, and you've probably found the same thing, Nikki, that membership, our management, the staff, I, I really haven't found any indication at all of any... So internally there's been no... None at all. Okay. Yeah. They've been extremely supportive. That's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to keep talking about the stories of all the women that are actually in the roles mm-hmm. and the and the emphasis that, that they're making through Clubland. Um, and just me meeting, that there's about 15 of us now that have joined this network group and a woman from uh, Carden Park in the UK, she's joined. So it's just growing and growing. So there are so many women out there in these roles, but no one's ever talked about it. It's just not been a topic of conversation. So now we're starting to, and I hope that my role and your, and leading from your role as well, I hope that these stories are just keep getting told. So everybody knows, you know what, there actually are women out uh, leading, leading these governance positions and on boards within golf clubs, because it's really important for everybody to know that. Yes. I think we'll get some compound effect from that because there's now more and more and more so the first woman to be in a leadership position was actually back in 1934 at Flinders, um, Helen Bowie. Um, but there was a long break then until I think the next one was 1993, perhaps around there, Joan McCafferty at Keysborough. And Alison Holden was the first on the sandbelt in 2000. What sort of positions are we talking, Catherine? Uh, GMs or on boards? No, no. Joan McCafferty was captain yep. at, at what's called a captain's club where the captain has the senior role. Um, Alison Holden was president at a president's club. Um, then there's been a few more since then. Many of the clubs have had them in regional areas and so on. But I think we're seeing more and more and more. And I think that, as Nikki says, as the stories are told, uh, we're going to have more women see other women and then feel like they can do it themselves. A little rabbit hole here. We've talked about this before, Karen, this notion of can't see it but can't be it. You kind of disagree with that as a as a concept, don't you? No. Uh, well, yes, I do, actually, because I feel that somebody was the first, so they had to be what they couldn't see. And I remember speaking with Bonnie Boozman and asking her the question, what does the first person have then? And her answer was vision. And they obviously have to have self-belief and drive and a few other personal qualities to push through because the first always encounters the most barriers, don't they? But the more that you then have other people come into those roles, I think that people who might not have believed they were capable of performing that role start to get the belief that they can. Does it make a difference, Sue, whether we're men or women in these positions? Um. No, I don't think so. I actually think it's great because it brings in a diversity. Um, and, you know, again, that's what we're also trying to do on the at board level, and that is to bring in people of varying experiences so that you've got a, a real skills-based board. I mean, it's the skill of the person rather than their gender that's important. Well, it should be, shouldn't it? But historically, we know that, that kind of hasn't been the case, don't we? And so I guess that's why it's kind of still that man by its dog idea, isn't it? The tabloid idea of it's unusual to think that the president at Kingston Heath would be a woman. If the president at Kingston Heath was a man and sitting here, it would never be mentioned. You'd just be the president of Kingston Heath. But we're still at that phase, aren't we, where it's a bit man by its dog. That's that's true, Rod, yes. Kind of, the idea is to move through that, I guess, but you can't move through it without going through it. You can't leap ahead to... What do you reckon, Nikki? Does it make a difference? Are men and women different in any way when they think about this sort of corporate government? Because a golf club like Kingston Heath or Victoria is actually a fairly significant business, isn't it? 
it's not not just a cohort of members who go and play golf a couple of times a week. It's a fairly significant thing. It is significant, yeah. But at the end of the day, it is a sporting organisation. It's a business, um, and we're all there to play golf, socialise. Um, I suppose when Sue and I talk about our experiences of the clubs that we're at, they're tier one. But over time and promoting women's golf over the last six years, I've seen it at a, a more basic, average, public facility level. So um, I feel like um, us as leaders in tier one clubs have a responsibility to to promote the game, um, share share um, um, a certain type of um, engagement for everybody to be involved in 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 club land, uh, no matter what level the club is at, um, and. Uh, yeah, I just think that um, it's it's easier to sit where we are, but and and we've got um, many members that uh, want to integrate with us and 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 get the best out of the clubs that that they're playing at, which is you know it costs them a lot of money to be at the clubs that we're at, um, and you know I just I think it's um, every member has their own story, no matter what level you're at. So it's really good to share. The, the the leadership positions that we're in now uh, to embrace um, all new members at the club, but to also lead to all avenues and the industry, the industry probably, in yeah. the same way yeah. that everybody would love to yeah. have the course that Kingston Heath or Victoria have. Yeah. The same could be true of culture where you set those standards. Yes, yeah, conditions yeah. And we're design. not just there. Yeah, I see our position now as we women in this role. If we're going to be called of the first uh, female president, well, then actually let's use that to our advantage and make a difference in this in this role. Is it an added pressure? Is it a disadvantage to be the first woman? Does it distract from if 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 we had the male president of Kingston Heath? There's an awful lot of stuff he doesn't have to talk about and can get on with doing other things. Every minute you spend talking about being women in the business is a minute not spent doing something else, isn't it? Yeah, I think. Um, I yeah, no, I don't. I, I'm pretty comfortable with um, using this um, as an advantage, um, and I would. Like all members of I've totally like Sue have been embraced in this role, and it just brings a different energy to the place. Um, I, I I play with many members. I'm happy to hear their stories. I integrate. Well, I'm, they're happy to give them to you too. Yeah, captains yep. and presidents can tell you that. <laughs> yep. No problem. Um, but um, yeah, no. I'm. I think it's good. I mean, what do you think, Sue? Do you get out and oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think what, there's a bit of a myth about uh, as a female that you're there to represent the females in the club. That's absolutely not. Are you reading what you're my there notes, for. Sue, because it's the no, next no, thing no. I was going to come to. This is, uh, I mean, and I'm sure Nikki is the same. I'm here to represent all of the members. Um, I mean, obviously, I've, I've known female members for a longer time because I was women's captain and on um, you know the women's committee before but one of the things that I've really enjoyed and that you will too Nikki and that is getting to know the men at the club and hearing their perspective and I've, I've always felt it's extremely important that I'm not here as a women's representative I'm here as I was there as the president of, of the all club. of the members. You won't 
voted women's president. No. You were elected president of the golf club. That's right. Karen, you would encounter this too, I'm sure, and it's a mistake I think we make, thinking that it's a good thing. Women should write about women's golf. Is that true? Is there any merit to that? We can all bring different perspectives, I'm sure, but boxing people that way, is that healthy? I don't think it is, no. I think that we need to get to a position where we have people in roles and the adjectives disappear. So you are no longer the female writer, you are no longer the female president, you're no longer the female anybody, you are just the role that you are performing. So, And I think that to confine uh, women to certain roles, for example, I'm only a women's golf writer, for example, I think that's selling that person short. You should be able to, as as um, Sue has alluded and Nikki, if they're uh, representing all members, then it is fair that a female in a role is then able to talk to everybody in the population that they're representing or storytelling or whatever you're doing. I'm going to make an unfair assumption, Sue, that you've been around golf for a while Yes. to get to this position. Have you seen changes in this regard? Oh, very much so. Yes, um, and I, I agree with you, Karen. I think it would be great. We're, we're moving closer and closer to the position where your gender is not an issue, but it certainly was, um, you know, when we were trying to get uh, women onto the course on a Saturday afternoon, for instance. Um, you know, I got a little bit of pushback from a couple of guys, but, you know, that was 20 years ago. It, I don't get it now. Yep, really, there's no area in golf I don't see that females can't participate. And I know on this podcast you've spoken many times about the negative perception about golf and that it is might white males. Um, I think that, alluding to what Sue just said then, that stereotype is has been there for such a long time. When men play with women and they find that you don't lose your ball or you can keep up or that you're pleasant company – you start to break down that stereotype that they've been socialised into, probably by other males, that playing with women is actually okay. And the same thing with then entering into these roles. You're breaking that perception that women can't do it. I think it also stems from the lack of uh, female participation in the game. Mm. So they actually haven't, I see it, that they haven't actually had an opportunity to play with many women in the past. So when I first started at Kingston Heath, I became a six-day member and then um, 10 years down the track, I thought, oh, I'll become a seven-day member. So that was my choice and um, I signed up for that. And then I played on a Saturday morning and I played with one like? of the guys. What was that like, playing on a Saturday? I, I, I can never have that experience, being a woman playing on a Saturday. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Yeah, it's just another opportunity and golf offering that was um, tabled in my membership that I was able to do. Um I've never had so many beers on course playing golf. <laughs> Sorry. You can wipe that. But uh, <laughs> but I won't. Yeah. Um, but And one of the guys said to me, he was 45 years old, and he said this is the first – and he'd been a member of Kingston Heath for over 20 years, and it's the first time I played with a female golfer, a female. And I was like, what? Are you serious? And he said, yeah, I've never played with a female. I'm like, okay. So it's – it's just the lack of opportunity that the men have had to play with women because the demographic and the participation rate has just been dropping. So I feel like I take it from the positive. I don't look at it as the half the glass half empty. It's half full and we've just got to promote 
more women to take up the game so then guys can that like you say Karen it we can play golf we can keep up like I can play with a 90 year old um, female I can play with a 90 year old male and we can all walk down the fairway together hit our own ball and it's it's a game for life it's you don't need to sell golf to no, us like yeah. we, we know the beauties of that which yeah. brings us I suppose neatly to one of the things we came together to talk about today the Mixed Australian Opens. How important is professional golf in all of this, particularly in light of what Nikki just said, Sue, about more women playing golf? We saw last week at Royal Queensland kids lining the fairways, worshipping Cam Smith, as many of us did in the 80s and 90s with Greg Norman, as others have done previously with Tiger Woods and those sorts of things. How do we transfer that to more women being part of the game? It feels like lots of women in the past have tried the game and found something about it that drove them away? Are we still got those issues? What do we do about that? Look, I think we've got those issues to some extent, but I'm, I'm sure you found the same thing, Nikki, and that is because of lockdown and because of working from home, there's been a huge increase in the number of women wanting to learn to play golf. Our pro, Andrew Cooper, runs lessons for women. I'd say we've had about 60, it's probably actually more than that now, women who totally new to golf who've started and they love it. Some of them will stay on and some of them have actually joined the club, but some of them will go and play at nearby clubs or they'll go to the driving range. They're doing that in small groups and working out, is this going to be for me? The other big area that we've been working on for a number of years is with the young people and Look, it's, it's just fabulous to see these little girls. I think of one who's actually going to start her professional career this, this very week, Kona Matsuboto. She came to us as a 10-year-old. I walked out with her and she was on 45. And this week she turns pro. Wow. And it's, so good. It's, but the, the thing that's so joyful about these young women, and I, look, I'd say it with the young guys as well, they develop a great self-confidence. They play with all sorts of people. I, I think learning etiquette and the rules of golf, although that can pe- put people off, but it teaches them very valuable life lessons. And they become, they're just wonderful human beings. Whether they stay in golf or whether they, you know, have other careers and golf becomes part of their life, it's it's very exciting, actually. Karen, Minji Lee will be a focus this week, as she rightly should be. We was Women's Open champion in stunning fashion this year, an extraordinary performer on the golf course, Minji. Will we see with Minji, do we need to see with Minji, what we saw with Cam Smith last week? Do we need to see lots of young girls out following Minji and Hannah, not to single <laughs> Hannah and Jennifer Cupcho is here and say on you and there's some amazing players in this field. What's the importance of that? Does what we see with Cam Smith last week, does it translate to golfers of the future? And what's there to learn in terms of diversifying the field? Well, I think that's actually quite a tough uh, question, really, because you well, talk... I asked you because otherwise <laughs> I might have to think about answering it myself. Well, Cam appears, appeals to a certain segment of the population, doesn't he? Um, and I imagine that Minji and Hannah will appeal in a different way, which is neither better nor worse, it's just different. So I think that, it, as Nikki said, the participation is vital, really, and at both Victoria and Kingston Heath, you've got great participation ratios now up around about 33%, I think you have, which is well above the national average. So the more young girls that they can get into golf and via the 
Australian Gold Foundation Australian Junior Girls Scholarship Program, the more girls that are coming in, and that program's having tremendous effect, the more those girls are going to look for idols. And we have idols now. I mean, we've had an idol, obviously, in Kari Webb, who's an icon rather than an idol. And she's, she, got, she's gone beyond all of it, hasn't there? There are no superlatives oh, yeah. left for Kari. No, there are no words left to describe Kari. In fact, I once wrote that. What what more can be said about <laughs> right. Kari Webb? Here's a short story. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I think that we now have idols for them to see. Steph Kiriako is another one. Um, and I think the girls uh, will be some of them at the Open this week and they will see their idols in action and I think the future looks really bright actually for women to come into the go- into the game. Nikki what's your what's been your pathway into golf and what might be the pathways we've missed for girls in the past? How did oh, you well, come to golf? I know that your story is somewhat different to a lot of people but yeah my sister so my sister and I, I was into a certain, uh, athletics and doing other things and my sister was not really into it and Sue knows Simone. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a member of Victoria for six, uh, 26 years but um, she started when she was 13 because she was doing nothing at home and mum said, okay, come down to the golf club. Mum had just started at Q. So that was no her. No running, no sweating, no bashing into no, other people. playing the, the fabulous, piano. Fabulous yeah, I know. She was, <laughs> so she um, – so it was just a matter of, you know, which pathway children go down. So I think it's very valuable to get this My Golf into primary schools and that's where we're going to offer these, this this new game and then they can have a choice of netball, hockey, golf. That's where Should we need to get the kids, yeah. If we accept, and I think it's probably fair to say, that it's been men trying to sell golf to both women and men for a very long time, where have men perhaps got it wrong? I had a lady from the LPGA once tell me many years ago, girls favour a group activity. If you can get them and their friends to go and try it, you're more likely that they'll enjoy it and have some success at it. Well, boys are different. You know, Boys will be encouraged to grab dad's clubs and just two of them might go off and sort of experience golf. Is there anything in that? Do we need to sell the game differently to women than we do to men? I think back to when I worked in the fitness industry and it was not gender exclusive. It, we We've done it better than any fit industry, hasn't it? Yeah, the fitness so industry. we had a fitness club and we had to sell um, Step Reebok, uh, uh, the Grapevine, you know, all these aerobics classes. I'm shaking and we saying never, those things. I know, <laughs> remember? And the leg warmers. And yeah. So, Make it burn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We never, we never sold the product to one gender. It was, it was just that's how we, that's how the marketing and advertising plan worked. And so we would have aerobics rooms full of men and women doing step Reebok. So it, it never came to so now, um, and that's a community. That's a community. They all walk in together, and 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 they're they're all intimidated. Not but they go for it. Similar to golf in many ways, is it? You've got people of all sorts of different that's standards right. as well. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think um, back to the back to um, what was the question again? Back to promoting the game. Men selling. Yeah, golf men selling golf. Yeah. Um, you definitely need. Well, it's it's obvious. We need the diversity of men and women. Uh, every they, each gender brings a different. Uh, energy and ideas and you only have to look at the PGA and Golf Australia now working together and WPGA. It, there is movement. There, There is something happening up there and there, and it's a different energy. Um, they're getting things done and it's looking really exciting. So um, 
women do sell it different. And when uh, organising Fairway Birdies, we just, you know, I, I was a female selling my idea of how golf should look and it was easy. It was easy to empower women because they could see me doing it. So, you know, it was, it was an easy sell. It, it is an easy sell when women sell things to women. Karen, I reckon you've given this plenty of thought over time, maybe not specifically. Am I right or wrong about that? And I don't even know what your path to golf was. Did did you as a younger woman or younger girl have to work harder to stay at golf than perhaps your brother might have had you started together? I think that's a not uncommon story. Well, my story is probably similar to many stories, including Nikki's, and that is, is that I came from a family that was besotted with golf and initially thought I would never play because these people were quite quite <laughs> crazy. Um, but then my partner, who I met in my teens, was from a and now my husband. Um, he came from a, a golf family as well. So of course, when you're young and you know crazy about somebody, <laughs> <laughs> you follow them around a bit. So he asked me to go out and play, and so I, I did go out. That wasn't all that encouraging. But later, after I'd had a few injuries playing other sports, I then started playing golf more seriously. And wound up quite obsessed. So, and, and playing and saying to him, look, I'd best if you stay home cycle. today, I'm off to golf. <laughs> exactly. <you> <laughs> I'd gone from condemning other obsessed, crazy people to becoming an obsessed, crazy person. You'll note <laughs> that I resisted the urge when you mentioned having met Mark in your teens. I resisted the urge to say you get less for murder in some places, <laughs> which I thought was extremely good of me. Well, he's mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no doubt. Every parole hearing that comes around, I'm sure he brings it up. Sue, do those stories ring true to you? Um, and what can we as an industry do differently? when it comes to there is a, clearly a segment of the population that we've missed the fitness industry didn't miss women golf has how have we done that how do we fix Look, it I, I think one of the reasons we've got a very successful junior girls program at victoria and had it for many years one of the reasons is comes back to exactly what you said the girls actually like to be with other girls that we're very social guys are happy to go out and you know hit a, just play on their own um, I suppose I'm generalising here, but that's what we see, that the girls come along, they make friends. Karen, you were um, asking me about the Junior Girls Scholarship Program. I spoke to Jess yesterday, who's running it. She's a, a young woman at our club who just is amazing what she's doing for the club. Great singer as well, did you tell me, Karen? Yes, yes. Jessica Clark. She sings like an angel. Yeah. She actually, during lockdown, provided concerts for us on Zoom as well. I mean, she's just a multi-talented but a lovely, lovely lady who I actually had the pleasure of caddying for her at Pennant, but I'm getting off track. Um, so Jess is organising these six junior girls, and I was speaking to her yesterday, and she said, Sue, they've just bonded. They all support each other. They love coming because they're friends with each other. Um and by the way, you'll see them next week. At- <laughs> on the TV, <laughs> following around the various players. Uh, but even more than that, on the final day, where, with the presentation of the winners, there will be our six little girls, although well, they're not so little anymore. <laughs> they'll be the guard of honour. Oh, fabulous. And I, I also believe that the Today Show are coming to do a segment at the club. I'm not sure what day it is, but... Yeah, so they're very excited. That'll be a blur by the end of the week, Sue. Yes. The TV crew's coming in and out because the fields that we have on both sides, there really is going to be news, yes. newsworthy. Isn't it imp- – can I just interrupt this? Of Isn't it important um, when we're talking about these young girls through the Australian Girls Scholarship Program to be mindful of the narrative around golf, 
to promote these young younger girls, the younger generation, that we really need to focus on the culture and the narrative that we use around golf and how we're promoting it. So, what, what do you mean by that specifically, Nikki? What should the well, narrative be? Well, I think it needs to be younger. I think it needs to be more modern. Um, I'm sitting right here, Nikki. Yes. <laughs> as, a, as an older person, right here, and you're saying that to me. I agree yeah. completely with you. You're right. Yeah. It's So no more I'm going out to play golf and, um, I, and I love hanging with my mates and having beers. It's more about, oh, I'm going to play with my friends and have drinks. Or in regards to um, women as such, the word women, I think we need to reference and change the narrative like you were saying before, the genders. Um, I think that's really important for the new generation. Sometimes the danger with that, Nikki, I agree with you, we see this. I wrote a piece about this, I think it was last year the year before. You did, yes. The Phoenix Open, we had Mm -hmm. the people chucking the beer cans on the green. This is great fun. And I wrote a thing. I didn't think that was terrific. And I was called all sorts of names and an old fuddy-duddy. The point of that story was, and I think this is what we need to be careful sometimes with golf, if we're going to sell that narrative, we need to back it up. And if the experience of people when they arrive at a golf facility, be it Kingston Heath, Sandy Golf Links or my old golf club up at Mangrove Mountain, uh, up on the central coast of New South Wales, they need to find that that narrative is a reality. That's difficult to do in golf, isn't it, Karen? Because it's, a, it's not an amorphous mass. There is no czar who says you will all follow this narrative. I don't know what we do about that, but there's issues about that, isn't there? That the experience you have at the coal phase is not necessarily the narrative that we've been selling? Well, firstly, I would say that we're looking for harmony, not homogeneity. So, And that's part of bringing diversity into golf. So that's important as well there. Um, Two of the pillars of Vision 2025 were engagement and culture. And I think that we have to marry those. You cannot have a focus on engagement without also including culture because you can get a lot of bums on seats, as the expression goes. But if those seats are not comfortable, people are going to leave. So, and conversely, if there was only one woman in the world, she needs to feel comfortable and welcome. And so I think that we have to make sure that we work those two evenly to get the ideal result. Nice use of getting homogeneity. Yeah, that was awesome. So, yeah, I was very impressed. I didn't yeah. hear anything you said after no, that. I, mean, I was just <laughs> fabulously impressed. That you got that <laughs> You're right, of course, and I guess that Phoenix Open experience that I wrote about, Sue, that's engagement, isn't it? It is the most attended golf tournament in the world. I will bet London to a brick that 90% of the people at that tournament never go anywhere near a golf course before or since. Look, I think one of the other aspects about golf that I've just – when you become part of a club – and this is what we were trying to do with the young women who came along to have lessons. We brought them into the club because we wanted to show them what club life is actually like. So it doesn't matter whether it's your country club or, you know, a tier one club. That sense of camaraderie and having friends for life and having a community that you belong to is in many ways just as important as playing the game it's itself. It's only reason to join a club in the modern Absolutely. era. There's plenty of golf, retail golf for sale should you want to yes. experience it the other way, and some do, which begs the question, Sue, does that product still sell to the younger market that Nikki's talking about? Is the club still something that's appealing to a next generation? Is that business model still workable? Look, I think it is. Um, as I said, I, I talked about the camaraderie between the girls. One of We have had difficulty trying to get a younger members group, you know, to, to run social functions for them. They are so busy. 
they start to have other interests. So whether they are working or starting a young family or whatever. The whole idea, though, is to introduce them to club life and then hope that at some stage they're able to come back to it. They buy the product, yes. so to speak. Yeah. To put it in they see what it is yeah. and they enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes they have to leave it for a few years and then come back to it. It's an interesting point, and golf feels almost unique to me in this way. Nikki, and you've played other sports, so this is probably your sort of understanding. It feels to me that there's a huge pool of people that golf doesn't focus on who we should. There's a real obsession in golf, particularly the last probably two decades, about youth, 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 and that's – I'm not speaking against that necessarily – but is not the biggest potential demographic those who've played golf when they were younger, been taken away from golf in a way by family, kids, business, work, careers, those sorts of things. Midlife, they've either been playing another competitive sport, which their knees, hips, shoulders won't let them do anymore, or kids are starting to leave the nest, they've got more free time and they're looking for a recreation. It feels like a big pool of their people there that golf could scoop up, but we don't seem to focus on that market. Well, I think it's... Like, as we've seen with the Australian Girls Scholarship girls coming through as a group, so we had eight girls start in ours and none of them knew each other. There was a couple of sisters and that was it. Now they are inseparable. They love it. They haven't missed a Sunday and it's the same with older generation. But And so it's been easy to organise um, the game for women over 45, when their kids are starting to leave school and going off to uni, getting cars, that's that's predominantly where the market is at the moment to yes. to get more and more participation increase. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been almost easy. At so it's Kingston. the low-hanging fruit in some ways? Yeah, at Kingston Heath and Victoria. So we've, we've put our programs together. We've got waiting lists now of women wanting to get into these programs. We are teaching them the game, though. We're using our resources at our club, um, we've talked in the past that these clubs are too hard to learn on. Well, they're actually not if you use them to the right be- to the right benefit. And um, it's that little demog- – it is that big demographic between 25 to 30. And I've got children myself and they'd love to do it, but they've just got no one to do it with and they don't know where to go and get these clinics together and, and that nothing's being offered to them. So – and as you say, Sue, they are they are time poor. They are time poor. Yes. But there, um, you know, there's another market there with nine hole short courses or um, the sim- simulator offerings, and so there are there are other offerings. But um, it is easier. It has been much easier doing it with the um, women over forty five. What do you reckon, Karen? Can we focus on the wrong demographics? Well, my thought about golf is is that it is not only the golf for life, the game for life, I should say, it is the game for all. And so you, we can both tell the stories and sell the game in different ways to the different markets. So you would be looking at it in a different way for juniors, for teenagers. Um, in the chrysalis moment that I wrote last year, I talked about stages rather than ages because after all, a woman can be a mother between 18 and 45, really. Um, so you've got to look at the stages of life, and I f- would like to see the focus broaden. Uh, I know there's a lot of focus on the 25 to 40-year-olds 40 40 year olds because that's the least represented, but I don't feel that it's really that big a problem as long as they know that when they are ready, they are welcome. 
And I feel that there are different opportunities. We're seeing all abilities players coming in. We're seeing multicultural people. We're seeing all sorts of people. And, and that's what I love about the game is the opportunity for diversity. Um, you spoke last week with Anthony Blackburn on the thing about golf and the benefits to the ageing population, people with dementia, who can use the types of tools that small children use and it helps them with their memory and their cognitive capacity. Golf is all these wonderful, wonderful things and I think we just have to just keep telling people and showing people by example and that's the way to draw people in from all parts of the community. And Karen, you haven't mentioned just how fabulous it is to be walking for four hours in a beautiful environment Mm. Mm. and just you know, how that can take you away from whatever might be bothering you. Um, another couple of things that I always say to the girls, you won't do your ACL um, <laughs> playing golf and you won't get a head injury or highly unlikely. So it's – and it truly is a game for life. Which is different to a mental health injury from the torture of, of actually playing the game. All of which, again, Sue, brings me back and uh, I keep coming to you with these. So why does Clover Moore want to close half of the golf course at Moore Park? And why do other um, local governments want to close their golf facilities and turn them into parks or something else? When yes. Golf has all of that to offer. It's very sad because they actually don't understand. They haven't um, they just, yeah, they don't actually understand what golf does uh, for the community. Um, I mean, I started playing golf in before uh, while I was at university, uh, but it was I was time poor. And I started back again in my uh, probably late 40s. Um, but then I also started playing with our son, and that was great. Uh, you know, it's a really nice way to relate to your kids. We would play. Um, he'd do his homework, not a lot. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd get dinner ready, and then we'd go off and play nine holes down at Sandringham. And, you know, it was a, a lovely way to spend an afternoon during daylight saving. It's often overlooked as I, I can – I will never forget what an impact this had on me. I went to the Australian Girls Junior Championship in the mid-1990s at Bonnie Doon, mm. and I saw loads and loads of girls from sort of 12 to 17, 18, and almost all of them had dads carrying their bag for them. And it dawned on me there's really not a lot dads and daughters can do together at that age. Golf might be one of the few things that they can really genuinely share – that wasn't always a healthy relationship, I hasten to add, as anybody who's been to a junior tournament will note. But it did strike me that it's one of the things we do overlook. Nikki, what have, you told us just before we came on air here, you just went recently on a podcast that had nothing to do with golf, about boards. How does golf make sell this message that we all understand intrinsically and can't understand why Clovermore doesn't get it? How do we sell that to Clovermore? How do we tell that story? That seems to me to be one of our biggest barriers. Well, I firstly think that they don't understand who's actually caring and maintaining the course to keep Clovermore looking like it is. So you only have to look at Elston Week. Mm, what happens when you close yeah, the golf course? Yeah, it's a swampland and it's overgrown and, and thank goodness we um, fought off for Northcote and we've kept Northcote um, up and running as well. Sorry, Nikki, will anybody be surprised when somebody in the next few years suggests that that monstrosity that is now Elstonwick should be turned into housing? Most probably. No. It won't be a surprise, will it, when that gets suggested, and it will. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, back to where you were saying. Northcote, you're right, was, was 
a victory of sorts, the danger in some of these things for golf, in Moore Park was a similar thing with Clover Moore. She wanted to close nine holes and the state government eventually said, no, that's not what would happen. They're all temporary victories, these, aren't they? This pressure on golf isn't going to stop, is it? No. No, um, but we need to keep going. We need to keep pushing and 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 increasing participation. We want people lining up. We want the places booked out. Um there is a bit of a feel of that at the moment, though. We certainly there. did during COVID, yeah. didn't we? Are yeah. we uh, is the danger that golf wastes that opportunity if we're not careful? I mean, Kingston Heath is pretty full. <laughs> um, That'll always be true, though. I, there are certain courses, Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Victoria, Augusta National. There are courses and clubs in the world we know will never be impacted by anything. The, 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 the desire, the aspiration to get into those sorts of courses for all of the right reasons will mean they will never have an issue. It is at the other end where there are potential problems. Yeah. We've seen lots of semi-private golf courses, which is the predominant model here in Australia, sell off land, for example, to fund something, lose parts of the course to be able to sort of keep going. They're the sorts of dangers. It's a bigger issue, but I wonder how we as golfers get our story understood outside of golf. I think we take for granted in some ways what golf is, all the things that Karen mentioned. I was nodding, yes, yes, yes. If I was a non-golfer, I wouldn't understand any of what she just said. Yeah. And it's probably the partnerships and relationships with council that the the governing body really needs to focus on as well. Yeah. When you went onto that podcast that had nothing to do with golf, hey, that must have been very uncomfortable for you. I can't imagine talking about anything that wasn't to do with golf. But what do people ask you about golf? Are you surprised by people's perception of the game who've not had any contact with the game previously. Yeah, I think um, – so I went on um, Take On Board and it was a uh, – it's a podcast on um, uh, women um, uh, committing to positions of directorship and, and board positions uh, and governance. So, um, you know, I'll be vulnerable um, here right now. I've uh, – my first board was Golf Victoria and Kingston Heath. Um, so – um, I have a very minimal experience of my own. And we talked about actually the um, opportunity that was, has been given to me that probably, you know, 15 years ago, I never, ever thought that I would have. I never thought that I would be in the position I am today. So um, we talked about the golf, the opportunity that golf has given me in my life um, and, um, and it's made a huge impact. So I've made the best out of it. Uh, so when we talk, uh, I was talking to um, Halia, and she was uh, she was just interested in my story, how I became became um, a board member of um, the two boards, and and shared a few other stories um, with her. Um, uh, but my the main emphasis that I've learned to um, to educate people on since I've become a board member in the golf industry in this sport is the culture and how we can um, influence people, um, especially board members that I sit with who have been on a board for six years or more um, and and influence their understanding of what a woman can add and bring value. Um, you can't be an expert at everything. You can't turn up and be, and know everything backwards. But you, you met, can bring, met Nikki. <laughs> you can bring so much um, uh, in different in different ways. So I think it's more of an acceptance. Um, it was a great conversation with her. I listened to a couple of her other podcasts. Um, the young women starting up entrepreneurial businesses, learning more about how to become um, 
create their own boards themselves. Um, uh, and yeah, it was a very interesting piece. There are courses available for women to learn how to um, work on boards. I know that um, there's a woman called Margot Foster who doesn't play golf herself but whose mother was a golfer. Uh, I think she's a lawyer and there are other women that run courses specifically for women. Do you have those same courses for men? I can't imagine. It's not something you're born with, is it, knowing how to be on a board or run a business? No, but I would say that in the same way that um, golf has been led by men socialising men um, and they've therefore had more opportunities and more role models. Oh, I wasn't saying that in a, well, poor old men are being left out here by any stretch. Oh, of course you were. <laughs> Sue, I've always <laughs> been of the belief, enough about that, I've always been of the belief there are two types of people in the world. There are golfers and non-golfers. Mm-hmm. Not everyone who plays golf is a golfer and not everyone who doesn't play golf is a non-golfer. Does that make sense to you, that sort of idea? And how do we, how do we, same question as I asked of Nikki, how do we bring the non-golfers in? How do we help them to understand what golf can be for those of us who have the illness? Yes, I, I think it's, you know, most, pe- most people will try golf at some stage um, as a young person and then it really depends on, you know, whether it grabs them or not. Um, and also their circumstances. As I said, I mean, I was away from golf for probably about 30 years and then came back to it, and that wouldn't be an uncommon um, experience. You know, you, get, you you actually get to play other games that don't take quite so long. You know, that you were saying before about nine holes, very useful. You know, the whole sort of thing of um, golf taking up a long part of a day is a bit of an issue for women. It's part of the culture that Karen talked yes. about too. So that's across the board. Yes. Competition golf in this country is like an addiction. Yes. And it's not necessarily a healthy one. There's not too many days of the week. I know people who will not play golf if it's not in a competition. Well, I had a conversation with – sorry. I had a conversation uh, like this week with uh, a woman who uh, is part of a committee at a golf club and um, she was perplexed because one of the female members was playing – and she never entered the competition. She was just playing golf. Heave. And I said, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yes. yes. It's exactly right. So there's right. the culture yeah, piece. absolutely. We need to educate and understand that this is fun. It's supposed to be fun. And, of course, Nikki, nobody comes to this game thinking, I wouldn't mind having a crack at golf. And the other thing about golf is, even though I know nothing about it, is that every time I tear it up, it'll be in a comp. Mm. Nobody comes to the game with that mindset. You develop it by being a part of golf, and then it becomes the norm, then you think anybody who doesn't agree with that is outside the norm. And that's what culture really is, isn't it? Is part of this going to be generational, Karen? I don't think there's a silver bullet. You can see how many fronts there are issues for the game more broadly, for the game with women, for the game with diversification, for public golf. There's no silver bullet to solve all of golf's problems. But are some of these issues going to be just about generational change? Well, I think change always happens through generations. Um, I mean, we're very, very different, aren't we, from Shakespeare's days, from feudal England, from cavemen and women. So, yes, change happens through generations. Uh, I think there are certain areas where we're looking to accelerate change, and that's where you've then got to make some sort of positive movement, don't you? And what about discomfort, Nikki? What's the role of discomfort in all this? Do some people need to feel some discomfort to understand why and how the game needs to change? I think the discomfort comes from others because they're not ready for change, which is what you just said. Um, 
and uh, uh, you just well for myself if I want to challenge them, I need I need to be a leader and I need to put myself out there. If I'm not ready to do that, then I'm not going to make a difference. It's golf's responsibility to tell its stories. It's not yeah. the responsibility of those who don't play golf to That's come right. and find out why we should allow it to continue. Yeah, in and it's not the responsibility spaces. for a golfer as such to to decide how the newcomer is going to play the game and enjoy. It. You let let them. They need to create their own story. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, let's finish up by talking a little bit about what is going to be the event of the week, and I think it will have the eyes of the golf world on it, Sue. Where do you stand on the mixed Australian Opens? Oh, I think it's fabulous. It's worked so well for the Victorian Open. Um, and I think the world is going to see just how good a mixed event can be. Um, I actually would also include the all abilities. I believe we have one player who comes along, he gets on the tee, takes off one leg, hits the ball, puts, on, puts his leg back on again and walks off. And he's playing off a handicap of three. Remarkable. Shane Shane Luke, I think, is who you might be talking about. There's an Australian kid. There's a Spanish chap too, Juan Postigo. If you have not seen this young fellow's swing, it's extraordinary. At the World Cup at Kingston Heath, I think it was, in maybe 2016, the pros lined up to watch him swing. It was just extraordinary. I believe we've also got the number one all abilities from the UK. Brendan Law, I think, is who. And absolutely going that. And look, shout out to Christian Hamilton, not for the first time. He has driven globally that entire all abilities uh, ship and done an amazing job. The first time I saw all abilities players in the field on a Sunday at the Australian Open coming up the 18th fairway mixed in with the field of uh, professional players, that's an extraordinary achievement and fabulous to see. Prominent on the world stage now, isn't it? Look, it really is and should be and it really does come down to Christian. He's he's infuriatingly perfect, Christian, actually, the more I think. I cannot find anything about him that I don't like, which is... uh, it makes you suspicious, doesn't it? Karen, what are you looking forward to most this week? Many, many things. I think the field has uh, 11 major winners in it. That's eight women and three men. Of those 11 major winners, four of them are reigning. So Cameron Smith's obviously won. Um, and then the three, which are Jennifer Cupcho, Ashley Buhai and Minji. So we're going to see some fantastic golf. Um I think the All Abilities, it, I know it's been run there before, but I'm excited to see that. I have watched a bit of it, not just a bit of it, quite a lot actually because it's been a passion of mine to follow inclusion in golf. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how it's received um, by the community because this is the first time they will have seen the national championship run concurrently. Not People, everybody's on board with the notion. No, they're actually, they're not, surprisingly, disappointingly, but I feel that we should go into it with a hopeful, optimistic outlook and form your opinion afterwards. If there's homework afterwards, so be it. But there's no point in um, looking for the problems or the negatives beforehand, is there really? Um, That's not going to achieve anything. Uh, I think Melbourne is really looking for this event at the moment because we haven't had an event for such a long time and as Nikki and Sue have said, there's a real buzz around. In terms of Australian golf, it is our greatest asset, is it not, to sell internationally, is the Melbourne Sandbill. Your two clubs are very much in that nest of clubs that people will travel across the planet to experience. And And what a wonderful opportunity to have this format going forward. Yeah. 
I mean, yes, I've heard the comments around it I'll should be it. individual. I, I have some concerns in some of the logistics of the field. The, the Vic Open each year, the Sunday cut means there are 30 players in each field, and I feel that's too few for a national open. I do have some sympathy with the notion of the two events being standalone and having their own week as well. But I have to say that simultaneously I contradict myself and I can't wait to see this week unfold. As Karen said, and say, okay, do we need to fix some things afterwards? Let's look at those afterwards. Let's have the event first. So just to, I'm not going to pretend that I'm, I'm the cheerleading for the event. I do have some concerns about that stuff. But I do think the men and women together is a fantastic, certainly for publicity and attention on the game, and shows golf and golfers that men and women can play together. And golfers yeah. need to hear that at least as much as non-golfers. Well, we've been in a drought, as we said earlier. We've been in a drought of Australian tournament golf. And the the country needs it. The sport needs it. So let's just wait and see what the statistics are afterwards. But it's we need to promote this game. And on the back of this, uh, what perfect opportunity. One thing is guaranteed, Nikki and Sue, both of your golf courses will excel themselves as venues and as tests for the professional players of both genders. And as a golfer, it will be fascinating to watch all of them tackle that. It's been wonderful for you to take take some time today. Nikki, thank you very much. We really do appreciate it. Great to meet you, Rod. Thanks. Nikki, you need to get out more. It's great to see me. It's very kind of you to say. I've heard so much about you. Not all good. Yeah, most, but of it from, good. most of it from Karen, which is what concerns me. Sue, it's been fabulous of you to take some time as well. Really Thank you so it. much. I've really enjoyed it. Glad to hear that. And Karen, it's been good to have you aboard. Did you enjoy being co host? Will you come back? Uh, yes, I think I might, actually, if we have Nikki and Sue again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's lots more we can talk yes, about. Yes, well, it, Funnily enough, there really is endless, isn't it? And yes. none of it's got anything to do with fixing your slice or having less putts. Golf is fascinating so much more beyond the just playing of the game and whatnot. It's a it's a fascinating game and industry. That's it for episode 125 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking and we'll be back again to it all again, possibly later this week. You're on the Good Good Golf Podcast. Not with you guys. <laughs> You're on the Good I'm Good busy. Golf Podcast. <laughs>